Hey everybody, it's Brock Falk, and I want to thank you for listening to this message from Heritage Church of Christ. We would be thrilled to share more content like this with you and make it easy for you to share it with others. You can find more messages like this on our podcast, or you can download our smartphone app by searching for Heritage Church of Christ in your app store. But most importantly, I hope this message encourages you to take a next step toward a thriving relationship with Jesus. Enjoy. It varies. Sometimes I'll find myself in a classroom that looks like the middle school that I attended, and sometimes it looks like the college where I went to college. But the storyline of the dream is always the same. I'm in a college-level math course, and I'm, it's getting close to the end of the semester. In fact, it's almost time for the final exam, and suddenly I realize that I haven't attended the class since the first day. I haven't gone to class since the day that they passed out the syllabus and let us know what to expect and I've been going to all of my other classes and I've been being a good student but somehow I've just forgotten that I was enrolled in a math class and what's worse there's this big project that everybody else has been working on every week throughout the semester this project that's going to take months to complete and I haven't even started. And it's almost time for that project to be turned in. And it's almost time for the final. And I haven't started the project and I haven't studied for the test. And sometimes I wake up right then. Sometimes the dream goes long enough that I end up approaching the professor to ask for help. And in that conversation, in that dialogue, I'm asking for an extension on the project and hoping that somehow, some way, there might be some possibility of me having more time to prepare for the final exam that I am completely unprepared to take. And that's the moment when I usually wake up, is when I ask the question. And I'm left wondering what the response will be. In fact, sometimes I try to go back to sleep because I want to know, did I get away with it? You know, did it work out? And I don't get to hear the professor's response. I'm left with this anxiety, wake up in a cold sweat, wondering whether I'll ultimately pass or fail the test. And it all depends on how sympathetic, how lenient that professor decides to be with me. I don't know what to make of all of that. I don't know exactly what to make of the fact that this dream comes to me time and time again. It's probably connected to some deep-seated anxiety that I have about math classes in general or about failure in school more specifically. But one of the features of the dream that that seems very consistent is that I'm always depending on someone else to be graceful to me. I'm always depending on somebody else's mercy. I've messed up. I'm in a jam, I can't blame anybody else, it's all my fault, there's really no hope unless someone else steps up and offers more leniency than I deserve. And we've all been in that spot, haven't we? We all recognize that feeling where we're hoping for a little mercy even though we know we're in no position to deserve any mercy. How many of you have ever been pulled over for a speeding ticket and you, the officer said, I'm going to go back to, my, back to my car and I'll be back in just a minute. And you sat there just wondering. And that seems like the time just passes so slowly because you're wondering, is there going to be any leniency? Is there going to be any grace? Is there going to be any mercy for me? Or am I getting a speeding ticket today? And if you've been in that position, you know the feeling. But sometimes, sometimes we find ourselves on the opposite side of that equation. 
Sometimes we're the one who's being asked for mercy. Sometimes we're the one, the teacher, the police officer. Sometimes we are the person in authority, the person with the power in that situation, in that power dynamic, in that relationship, who's being asked for a break. Sometimes, and you can probably think of some situations in your own life, sometimes we're asked to extend mercy to someone else. And for for some of us, there are some times when it's easy to say yes. There's some times, especially maybe when you have really young children, you know, when it's easy to say, oh, yeah, honey, that's okay that you broke, you know, dad's favorite thing. No problem. But that's kind of the exception, not the rule. Because more often, more often than not, when when you're asked for mercy, it's cost you something. More often than not, when somebody comes to you and says, can I have some leniency? More often than not, that's a situation where that pardon is going to come with a price. It's going to cost you more time. It's going to cost you more effort. Or it's going to cost you swallowing the pain or the pride that you've already been wrestling with. Mercy's like that. Mercy's like that because we're only asked to be merciful when we've been slighted. We're only asked for grace when something has been taken from us, after something has been lost. There was a story that made national news almost 20 years ago in 2004 on Long Island, New York. There was a woman that was driving home from a family gathering, minding her own business, driving down the highway when suddenly the unthinkable happened. There was a group of teenagers driving a car in the opposite direction and one of them leaned out the window and threw a 20-pound frozen turkey at her car. And it went through her windshield and it sounds silly, but it was really serious This heavy frozen bird crashed through the windshield glass, bent the steering wheel forward, and landed right in her face. It shattered most of the bones in her face. Her esophagus collapsed. Her eye had to be reattached surgically. Her skull had to be repaired with titanium plates. She spent weeks in intensive care, multiple weeks under a medically induced coma. She spent months with a tracheotomy. She endured a long, painful road of rehabilitation. Doctors said it was miraculous that she even survived at all. But when it came time for the trial and the sentencing of the young man who thought he was just playing a prank, that was found guilty of throwing this turkey, Mrs. Ruvalo, the victim, she went to the judge and she asked for leniency. She went to the judge personally and she begged the judge for mercy for her attacker. In fact, the young man was facing a prison sentence of 25 years, but because of Mrs. Ruvalo's request, the sentence he received was six months in prison. Mrs. Ruvalo talked to the defendant, Ryan Cushing, and told him that she hoped that her leniency might change the course of his life story. She hoped that her compassion might lead him in a different direction with the rest of his life. Now, everybody would agree that Mrs. Ruvalo had something taken away from her and she suffered great pain and loss as a result of this prank. 
But some might argue that the response that she gave, this response of mercy, was the more difficult part, the more unimaginable part. C.S. Lewis said, everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. Everyone says forgiveness sounds great until you're the one who's experienced loss, who's been slighted, who's been offended, who's been abused, who's been injured, and suddenly the forgiveness is asked of you. And like it or not, life presents us all with a lot of opportunities to forgive, doesn't it? Life presents every single one of us with more opportunities than we would like to extend forgiveness to somebody else. Now, a few weeks ago, we started a series of messages here at Heritage that we have called Tell a Good Story. And what we're talking about in this series is that every life tells a grand story. Every life makes an impression on the people that it touches the loved ones, the community, the world around us, every one of our lives leaves an impression and in fact tells a story of what we thought was important, what we wanted to accomplish. And it's, it's natural for all of us, almost all of us have this natural inclination to want to be remembered, to want to make a difference, to want to have some kind of impact, even if that impact is limited to just the family that we love. It's natural in most of us. We have this innate sense that we want to leave the world, leave our family, leave the circumstances for the people that we love just a little bit better than we found it. Of course, everybody's got their own concept of what a good story looks like. Everybody's got their own vision of what a good life story is all about. For some people, a good life means you provided for your family and you put them in a financial position that was better than the one that was handed to you. For other people, a good life is about personal accomplishments and successes. There's all sorts of different narratives out there that we attach ourselves to and we think that's the kind of story I want to tell. But Jesus has a particular vision. Jesus has a particular vision for how his followers tell their story, for how his disciples leave their mark. And that means there is a distinctly Christian way to tell a good story with your life. And this morning, I want to show you some wisdom from one of the earliest followers of Jesus. That's, and this is, it's buried in the New Testament portion of our Bible. In fact, this is in a book that I've never preached from before today. And I'm thrilled to be able to share it with you this morning. There's this short letter in the middle of the New Testament that's called Philemon. And if you can find your way there, you may have to use the New Testament, I'm sorry, the table of contents and look for the New Testament there. But you'll find your way about halfway through, you'll find your way to this book that's called Philemon. And it tells one of the most compelling stories in all of Scripture. You have to do some detective work to figure out what it's all about. The entire book's only 21 verses long. It's only, it's, it's only one chapter. It's not even divided into different chapters. It was a personal letter that was written from one man to another. But it's addressing this dramatic situation that happened in the church almost 2,000 years ago. 
This letter was written by Paul, who was an early Christian missionary, and Paul and his team of evangelists had gone all around the northern rim of the Mediterranean in places that we know as Turkey and Greece and Italy and Crete and Cyprus. He had gone all across these nations planting churches and converting people to be followers of Jesus, but by the time that Paul wrote this letter, he had been thrown into prison because sometimes his ministry activity was seen as disruptive in the culture around him that was not accustomed to Christian disciples. But Paul, being in prison, it didn't stop him from sharing his faith. He just found ways to share his faith from jail. And somehow, he found himself pastoring this young man named Onesimus, who was a runaway slave. And the part that makes this story so dramatic is that Onesimus belonged to a slave owner who was a wealthy member of one of the churches that Paul was associated with. Onesimus' master was a Christian which raises all sorts of questions for us, especially with our historical awareness of some of the brutalities of slavery. In our place and time, if we knew of a church member here at Heritage who owned slaves, we would have a real problem with that. But slavery in the Roman Empire was very common. In fact, some estimates suggest that as many as 30% of those living in Roman territories lived as slaves. And Christianity was a minority religion practiced out on the fringes of society, and so it hadn't had this impact, didn't have this authority in the surrounding culture. But Paul was determined that the good news of Jesus was going to change the world, and it was going to happen one heart, one household, one community at a time. And so Paul discipled this runaway slave, Onesimus, led him to become a follower of Jesus, and then he set out to effect bigger change, and that's what this letter is all about. You see, Paul wrote this letter to Onesimus's master, Philemon. He wrote the letter to this slave owner, this slave-holding Christian, Philemon. But in kind of a sneaky way of making sure that it didn't just go unanswered and stay quiet, Paul addressed the letter so that everybody in the church where Philemon was a member would get to read this letter. He wanted Philemon's faith community to be in on the conversation that was happening, and he begins this letter with high praise for this slave-owning Christian. He says, Philemon, verse, th verse 4, I thank my God every time I mention you in my prayers because I've heard of your love and faithfulness, which you have both for the Lord Jesus and for all God's people. He's really, you know, commending his faithfulness here. He says, I pray that your partnership in the faith might become effective by an understanding of all that is good among us in Christ. I have great joy and encouragement because of your love since the hearts of God's people are refreshed by your actions, my brother. Now, Paul knew that Philemon was a man of influence, a man of influence inside the church and a man of influence outside the church. He knew that Philemon was a benefactor, a financial supporter of the ministry in the city of Colossae. He knew 
that there was a house church that met in Philemon's house and they might not have another place to be able to meet safely but Philemon, through his generosity, was hosting one of the house churches that made up the larger church in the city of Colossae. And Paul was appreciative for Philemon's leadership and support. But Philemon was a slave owner. And we don't know how many slaves he owned. We don't know how he treated them, though we can deduce something from the fact that Onesimus was running away, that he wanted to get away from, from Philemon. But Paul saw an opportunity for the gospel to make progress. He saw a window of opportunity to change a community. And so in the next section of this letter to Philemon, Paul makes his request. And here's what he wrote, beginning in verse 8. He says, Though I have enough confidence in Christ to command you to do the right thing, He's saying, I, I, I could just tell you what you have to do. Verse 9, I would rather appeal to you through love. I would rather ask you to do this of your own accord. He says, I, Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus. I became his father in the faith during my time in prison. Now this Paul is not actually Onesimus's earthly father, but he's the spiritual father. He's the person that brought Onesimus to know who Jesus is. And Paul is appealing to Onesimus's master, his owner, and saying, I am asking you on behalf, I'm coming to you, writing to you on behalf of my child in the faith, Onesimus. And he keeps writing in verse 12. He says, I'm sending him back to you. Can you imagine what that conversation between Paul and Onesimus was like? When Paul says, Onesimus, brother, you're doing so good. I'm so, so proud of how far you've come as you've grown in your faith. It's time for you to go back home. It's time for you to go back to Philemon. It's time for you to go back to the city of Colossae and to the church community there. It's time for you to go home and I imagine Onesimus being pretty nervous about that. I imagine Onesimus being pretty scared of how he would be received. I imagine Onesimus worrying about his own well-being. But Paul says, I'm sending him back to you, which is like sending you my own heart. I considered keeping him with me so that he might serve me in your place during my time in prison because of the gospel. However, I didn't want to do anything without your consent so that your act of kindness would occur willingly and not under pressure. There's a relationship here between a patron and a recipient of a patron's gift that's common in Roman culture, Greek culture. And Paul is trying to be submissive and to try to be respectful to Philemon's position. He says, I didn't want to just steal him. I didn't want to be a part of keeping him away from you. I didn't want to commit a crime by abetting a runaway slave. He says, but I wanted to give you the chance to do the right thing. Verse 15, maybe this is the reason that Onesimus was separated from you for a while so that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave. That is, 
as a dearly loved brother. He is especially a dearly loved brother to me. And how much more can he become a brother to you personally and spiritually in the Lord? He's casting a vision. He's creating the the idea of a new reality for the relationship that could exist between Philemon and Onesimus. But all of the people in the church at Colossae are reading this letter, having it read to them out loud. They're listening and they're imagining how amazing it would be for a slave to be given that kind of inclusion, that kind of love, that kind of familial relationship. And so Paul says, verse 17, so if you really consider me a partner, Philemon, if all that we've shared before this day means anything to you, if you really consider me a partner, welcome Onesimus as if you were welcoming me. He says, when Onesimus shows up, I want you to pretend it's me showing up. Somebody that for whom you would set a special place at the table. Some, somebody for whom you would invite all of your friends to say, come meet my guest. I want you to welcome Onesimus as if you were welcoming me in verse 18. If he's harmed you in any way or if he owes you money, charge it to my account, Paul says. Which is so beautiful. It reminds me, it reminds me of the blank check in the story of the Good Samaritan where this man helps this poor victim of a robbery on the side of the road and takes him to a hotel and bandages his wounds and he leaves instructions with the innkeeper and says whatever expenses he incurs charge him to me this is Paul saying I'll take care of it whatever Onesimus owes you whatever you've lost whatever offense you have felt he says let me fix it. And then he goes on in verse 20 and he says, Yes, brother, I want this favor from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. I'm writing to you confident of your obedience and knowing that you will do more than I ask. Now that's a long passage, a long reading for us to go through together, but I bet you figured out exactly what's happening here that Paul is wanting Philemon to do something unprecedented. When he receives back his runaway slave, a runaway slave who's not going to come in handcuffs under the guard of law enforcement or detectives, but he's going to be coming back on his own volition, of his own free will. When this runaway slave shows back up at Philemon's house, Paul is asking Philemon to receive him without punishment or penalty. But more than that, he's asking Philemon to change the nature of their relationship, to change the nature of the way that they relate to one another, to put a ring on his finger and a robe around his shoulders and sandals on his feet. He's asking Philemon to treat Onesimus better than Onesimus deserves. He's asking him to stop treating Onesimus like a slave and to start treating him like a member of the family. And that meant 
forgiving Onesimus for running away, canceling the debt for anything that Onesimus owed him. It meant giving mercy. Paul's saying, Philemon, I want you to ignore any offense that you felt, any loss that you've incurred because of this runaway slave. I want you to offer mercy out of the goodness of your own heart. I want you to be gracious in a way that you don't have to be gracious. I want you to do more than you have to do, more than anybody would expect of you. I want you to go the extra mile. And when it all boiled down, what it all boiled down to was that Paul was asking Philemon to tell a great Christian story with his life. He says, I want you to do more than the law requires. I want you to do more than the culture expects. I want you to do more than your neighbors would presume that you would do. I want you to tell a good story with your life, and it needs to be a story that looks like Jesus. Paul wanted to inspire Philemon to tell a story that was different, a story that was unexpected and completely unlikely, apart from a movement of God in his heart. Paul was trying to challenge Philemon to lose face, to look silly in his culture, in his community, in his neighborhood, in his society. He was challenging Philemon to offer grace when punishment was deserved. And you know, from every detail we can gather, from every detail we can gather, it appears appears that Philemon was a well-respected member of his church. He was generous with his resources. He was hospitable with his home. He seemed to be passionate about the mission of the church. But Paul could see that Philemon's spiritual transformation wasn't complete yet. He knew That as long as Philemon continued to own other people and saw other people as subject to him, less than him, then the Holy Spirit still had work to do in Philemon's heart. And this is so important for us. This is so important for you and me to realize because becoming a Christian and even becoming a leader of the church like Philemon was doesn't mean that you've become all that God wants you to be. It means you're on the journey. It means you're in process. It means that you're being transformed. You've, tri- you've signed up for the process of undergoing transformation. And it is a process. God was still working on Philemon, transforming him into somebody who would be completely different than what he used to be. Previously, Philemon thought of himself as one of the elite a member of the upper class who had the power and the right to control other people because of their station in life. But here God was calling Philemon and saying, I want you to tell a different story. I want you to tell a story with your life that's gracious. I want you to tell a story with your life that's merciful. I want you to tell a story with your life that doesn't look like the story everybody else is telling. Paul was sending Onesimus back, and I bet Onesimus was shaken. I bet he was so nervous. I bet he was so afraid walking up that sidewalk, going up to that property, up to that house. He was a runaway. He was a thief. He had had caused Philemon to lose respect in the community, and so he was probably worried that he'd be punished. He might even be killed for his offenses. 
But Paul had this confidence that the Holy Spirit could work on both of these men. Paul had this confidence that the Holy Spirit could write a better story through them. He'd already watched as Onesimus's life story and trajectory had changed when he had become a follower of Jesus and become so serious about his faith. In fact, I suspect that it was his faith that was leading Onesimus to return to Philemon, to put himself at Philemon's feet. But Philemon had this opportunity to tell a new story, a merciful story, a story of grace. And the thing is, when you tell a grace story with your life, you give life to someone else's story. When you tell a grace story with the life that you are living, you give life to someone else's story. You've seen it happen with your kids. You've seen it happen with your spouse. You've seen it happen with your parents. You've seen it happen with the close family that's around you that loves you and you love. But God's calling us to do this with people that we don't owe that to. God's calling us to tell a grace story to people that don't deserve any mercy. God's calling us to tell the same story that was told to us. One of the most unique things about this letter to Philemon is that we don't know how it turned out. We don't know how it turned out. I don't know what happened when Philemon received this letter. I don't know what happened when Onesimus showed up. We don't know if Philemon was convicted, if he was cut to the heart, if he gave Onesimus a hug and welcomed him as a brother. We don't know if he treated him with disrespect and put him back to work or put him in prison. We don't know how it turned out. We won't know until we're together with the Lord. We won't know how the story of Philemon and Onesimus turned out. But we do know. We do know the story that God's asking us to tell. The story of grace, the story of inclusion, the story of mercy that God is saying, that's, that's what a good story looks like. And it's all grounded. It's all based on the story that God wrote for us.